Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by a special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com. Well, this was supposed to be part two, but most of you all failed to be here for part one. (laughs) So now what do you do? Part two. Let's just punish those people who didn't come. Uh, I'll do a 10-minute uh, a review, so at least you have some idea what we're talking about. And um, I, I want to talk about uh, becoming an apostolic people. That's what we're talking about. And last night, I talked about the fact that there are different seasons in, in obviously, in the world, but there's also different seasons. He wants me to put this up front. I forgot. Um, there are also different seasons in the kingdom. And those seasons are called epoch, E-P-O-C-H. It means a way in which God deals with a certain people at a certain time. And I believe that we're, we're, we're in the apostolic age. And last night we talked a lot about this transition, Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim a new thing to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. And we talked about the Lord giving us a new song. In other words, a new season requires a new way of thinking. And so we started talking about this new way of thinking, coming out of denominationalism. And by the way, if you're in denomination, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ism, not what it says over your door of your church, but what it says over the door of your heart. And we talked about denominationalism last night, that in denominationalism, we gather when we agree and we divide when we disagree. We're Protestants. It originally meant meant pro-Testament, as in pro-Bible, but it soon became the word for protester. And so we talked about yesterday that we, in in denominationalism, we gather when we agree and we divide when we disagree. And I asked the question last night, how many times has the Catholic Church split in 2,000 years? And the answer to that question is twice. And how many times has the Protestant Church split in 500 years? And then we said, well, that was a little hard, so how about in the last 30 days? And then we talked about why churches split, why Protestant churches split. And they split because they gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree. So what's it take to have a disagreement? An opinion. What's it take to have an opinion? A thought. What do we have to make sure you don't do if you're in a Protestant church? We have to make sure you don't think. So we don't preach to inspire you. We preach to convince you. Because thinking is very bad. (laughs) That's why the, the, the most powerful people in the world, you know, I, 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 we didn't say this exactly last night, but isn't it interesting that before you knew Jesus, you didn't have the mind of Christ. After you met Jesus, you have the mind of Christ. I, I'm just talking about, the, I'm talking about the advantages, the advantages of knowing Jesus. Before, oh, you lost your shoes, baby. Or your parents. But I will adopt you. <laughs> oh. Before you knew Jesus, you were, not, uh, you were not born again. After you met Jesus, you became a new creation. You live on earth and in heaven. Are you with me at all? Before we met Jesus, the Creator did not live inside of us. After we met Jesus, the creator of all the universe actually lives inside of us. You know, before we met Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus said that John the Baptist 
was the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament. In other words, he was greater than Daniel. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than Esther. He was greater than all the Old Testament people. But how many know that the least in the kingdom, the least person in this room was greater than John? Who was greater than Moses? You're like, I'd like to be like Moses. Actually, you were better than Moses. Moses wasn't born again. Moses had the spirit on him, but he didn't have the spirit in him. Are you with me? Moses was not seated in heavenly places. Moses did not have a new heart and a new mind. How many of you know you have the mind of Christ? Do you know what that means? That means you think like God. You know that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered the heart of man, all that God wants to do for those he loves. I don't know how many times I've heard people repeat that, but if you look at the passage, it's in italics. You know why? Because Paul is quoting an Old Testament prophet. He's saying the Old Testament prophet said, Eye hasn't seen. The Old Testament prophet said, Ear hasn't heard. The Old Testament prophet said, it hasn't entered our heart what God wants to do for us. But the next verse says, but, what, but it says, but we have been given his spirit by which we know all things. For it says, this, he said, what, how, what, who knows the thoughts of a man except for the spirit of man that's in him? People ask the question all the time, does the devil know my thoughts? Only if he gave them to you. Because the Bible says nobody knows your thoughts except for the spirit that's in you. And then he goes on to say, the next verse says, and no one knows the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God. Next verse. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God who knows all things. The Old Testament prophet says, who knows what God's thinking? Paul says, we do. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. No, you didn't get it, but... I'm not cursing you. I'm just saying you didn't get it. People say things all the time. Students, they come and they say, I want to know who I'm supposed to marry. I say, what are you thinking? I said, well, I'm thinking, who does God want me to marry? I said, I know. I heard you. What are you thinking? I am thinking, who does God want me to marry? I said, I understand what you just said. I'm asking you, what are you thinking? I don't know what you mean by that. Like, are you thinking I'd like to marry Jane? Yes. Why well, do I want to know what God thinks? He thinks. You think like he thinks. What do you mean by that? When you're right with God, you think like him. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. We're not supposed to be like God. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Hello. Just think through this for a moment. You're just trying to be like God. Yes, I've been called to imitate God. Why do I do miracles? Because I'm imitating God. You're just an imitator. I am. Because <laughs> God is not president of presidents. He's king of kings. Now, you know, what, you know why it makes a difference? Because if he's president of president, then you could vote him in. Or vote him out. And presidents have no legacies. But he's king of kings. What's that mean? You're part of his kingship. You are sons and daughters automatically born into royalty. Come on. Oh, no, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. 
I'm simply saying, before you knew God, you didn't have the mind of Christ. You didn't think like God. You didn't have the Creator inside. You didn't have the wisdom, Ephesians 3, from another age. You didn't have 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of wisdom. You didn't have any of those things in you. In fact, there are more than 40 advantages that you have as a born-again Christian over someone that doesn't yet know the Lord. So the question is, if that is true, then how come the greatest inventions, the greatest innovation, the greatest art, the greatest miracles, how come, how come the greatest thoughts in the world are not coming from the church? No, I'm saying, is this a philosophy or is it the truth? If it's the truth, how come atheists have bigger thoughts than we do? Okay, let's try here, because you don't know. <laughs> try you all here. If we have 40 advantages, including the creator of all the universe lives inside of me, the creator that made everything lives inside of me, then how come we're not the most innovative, inventive, creative people who's ever been born? Are you with me? But you didn't give me the answer. You just said, oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> because in denominationalism, we don't have permission to think. You were raised in a freaking orphanage. Don't think. You'll split the church. But we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Because in apostleships, we don't choose where we go to church by whether or not we agree. We go, there's my dad, there's my mother, my father, my uncle, my crazy aunt. And we're a family. And how many of you know in a family, you can have disagreements, but you're still part of the family. Are you with me? I'm saying it's a wineskin that can flex because you can be smarter than me. You can be, you know, if you're my son or you're my daughter, you can be smarter. You can be better educated. You could be, you could be more accomplished. But how many of you know it doesn't matter how accomplished you are, still, I'm still your daddy. And I'm saying there's a, right, there's a wineskin that allows you to be in community even though you're smart. Oh <laughs> uh, no, it's a really good word. Much better than <laughs> Sorry, I just have to tease you. It's the afternoon, man. I'm like I ate a cinnamon roll right before I got up here, and then <laughs> uh, sugar wore off like about three minutes before I got up here, and I'm like, oh, now we're going to know if I'm anointed or not. <sighs> okay, so, uh, okay, so this, this is the afternoon session, so this is going to get a little complicated for just a few minutes. Can you kind of, you're going to have to like, okay.
So, I used to say that the fivefold ministry, which is the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of service. That? You familiar with that? Okay. I used to say the fivefold ministry was the government of God. And then one day, years later, the Lord said, that's not true. Also, all right. I'll revise those three books. <laughs> Just don't tell anybody. And the Lord said, they're not the government, they're the governors. Okay, now you got to stay close for the next 10 minutes. He said, government is the structure the governors govern in, and leadership is the art of governing. You want to hear it one more time? Okay, he said, uh, <laughs> government, shut up. <laughs> There's an appropriate time to laugh. <laughs> government is the structure. Everybody say structure. structure. That governors govern in. Are you with me? And leadership is the art of governing. Okay. Now, you're like, what does that mean? Okay, so let me give you a word picture. In our city, when they built our Shasta College in our city, they did not put any sidewalks in when they finished the building. They planted lawn all the way around the college, and they waited for one year to see where the staff and the students wore out the grass. And where they wore out the grass, they put in sidewalks. Are you with me? It's a great word picture of government. Are you with me? In, this, in my word picture, government is the sidewalks. It should cover your weakness and should empower your strength. Is starting to get the idea? So I'm calling, when I say government, I'm talking about government is the structure that governors govern in. Are you with me? The idea is, in the metaphor, we're still in metaphor, the idea is that the sidewalks should take you to your destiny. If there was sidewalks poured that actually don't go anywhere, like the Winchester Mystery House. Oh, you wouldn't know what that is. It's Texas. Uh, there's a Winchester Mystery House where Mrs. Winchester built a house, and she built for like 50 years, and she has stairways going nowhere. You open the doors to no rooms. It's just the Winchester Mystery House. It, 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 lots of church structure looks like that. We copied other people's structure, but we have no room. Okay, now, let me give you one more example. When I was laying on the floor and the Lord told me this, he gave me this example of our American president. I was sharing this, I think, with the leadership team. Yeah, somewhere. Leadership team. When we left, when the United States, America, when we left British rule, we wanted, if you, you probably know some this history, we wanted Washington, George Washington, to be our, our king, but he refused to be king, which forced our forefathers to develop a new way of government. And so they were very concerned, including Washington. They thought that, that the Brits, that the king of Britain had too much power. So like we have to create some kind of balance of power, thus our three uh, uh, 
branches of government. Thank you. Thus, we have three branches of government, right? But our forefathers said, democracy, I know we're a democratic republic, but just for my sake of illustration, democracy is a great form of government in a time of peace. But if we were ever attacked on our own shores, democracy moves too slow to win a war. <laughs> because our president is also what? Commander-in-chief. Um, okay, the same person whose president is also in commander-in-chief. Uh, follow me, because that's important for the illustration. So think about this. If we did, so, oh, so let me finish this part. So they put something into our, into our government called martial law. Are you with me? Yeah. So that if we ever got attacked on our own shores, the president isn't having to check with Congress on every bomb he drops and every bullet he shoots. They declare martial law, and now what changes? The governor remains governor. I'm talking about the president. The same person remains in charge, but what changes? The structure. Do you see that you could have the greatest general in, in American history in, as commander-in-chief, but in a time of war, if we were being attacked, you realize we couldn't win a war? Not because he isn't capable, but because he's in the wrong structure. I'm asking you not to encourage me. I'm asking you, do you see it? Can you see how important structure is? I'm going to talk about structure as it relates to government in a minute, as it relates to church government in just a minute. But I'd like to propose that most people are not as successful as they should be or could be because they mimic other people's government. Because government begins with you. How you govern you. Where did you get your structure? Most of us got it by copying someone else. And the problem is, is that none of us are the same. And therefore, every one of us should have a government that was made just for us. Now, it may not be much different than someone else's. But if it's not any different, you won't do what anyone else. You'll only do what everyone else does. <laughs> are you following me so far? Okay, so now um, I want to tell you that the Lord told me, we're moving from pastorates, okay, explain. A pastorate is the kind of government that a pastor leads in. Are you still following me? I told you it's going to be a little hard to follow. So in other words, when I say pastor, we call everyone pastor, right? But in this role, I'm calling, I'm saying a fivefold pastor, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Are you with me? So I'm saying the Lord told me that apostles, that the, the, the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because they've emerged in a pastorate. What is a pastorate? It is a form of government designed for pastors. I'm talking about a real five-fold pastor, not just someone we call pastor. Okay? Okay, in the midst of that, um, turn to, to uh, John chapter 5, and I'm going to read you a very familiar piece of, passage, a piece of scripture that you will get, and I'm going to give you a little point. Now there was, verse 2, in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticles. Everybody say five porticles. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord will go down in certain seasons, everybody say certain seasons, into the pool and stir the water, and whoever then was first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was the was made well from whatever disease they were afflicted. Now, we can go through and read the rest of that. 
And I, I think you probably know those verses. So one day I'm reading those verses, and, uh, and the, the part of that, of that chapter that says that the five, I'm sorry, that the pool of Bethesda have five porticles. Have you ever read the have you ever read verses that you've read hundreds of times, and all of a sudden you see a phrase or a word that stands out, and you'd swear it was never there before? So I'm reading this, and I'm like, I'm just doing my daily reading, and I see the pool of Bethesda has five porticles, and I think, five porticles? What, why does he even mention it has five porticles? It doesn't say anything else about the pool. So I pray into it for weeks. <laughs> I read the passage over and over. I read it every day for weeks. And one day I'm in my wood shop. That's where Jesus goes. He's the carpenter. <laughs> if I was a carpenter, and you was a lady. Anyway, I don't know what that had to do with it. But anyway, <laughs> you ever, are you ever like this? You pray and pray and pray for something, and, and he doesn't talk to you? Yeah. Then you go in your wood shop, and he's like, hey, would you like to know about that? I'm like, yeah, six weeks ago would have been nice. <laughs> so I, I literally, I'm out in my wood shop, and, and the Lord says, do you know why the pool of Bethesda had five porticles? Like, tell me when I study. <laughs> I said, yeah. He says, because it represents the five-fold ministry. Five porticles, five coverings, five porches. And I said, what does that mean? He said, when the five-fold ministry goes from merging, remember we used to be a three-fold ministry, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now we're five-fold ministry. We added apostles and prophets. I'm saying the revelation that we did. He said, when the five-fold ministry goes from emerging to merging into one pool, it's going to create strategic alliances with heavenly allies, and there'll be miracles that haven't been seen since the first century. So I, for the next six months, was teaching on the emerging fivefold ministry, and, and, and that teaching was all about what are the different roles of the fivefold ministry and, how, and how, do they, how do they merge. So on a Sunday morning, we pray before the service. Uh, a bunch of us leaders get together. We've been doing it for, I don't know, 40 years. And um, so we were together, and we, you know, you have a tradition. You don't even know you have a tradition until you go to someone else's, Right? Like, I propose it's a tradition to raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus. That's not in the Bible. I propose that it's a tradition to repeat a prayer to find Jesus. That's not in the Bible. I propose it's a tradition for you to sit in seats and watch me preach. That's not in the Bible. Unless you're Jesus and you're in a boat, then that's in the Bible. So we have a tradition. So we, we grab hands, and there's maybe 25 to 35 of us in a room early Sunday morning. So we're, we're praying, and so we're praying, and we're, you know, and, and someone's praying, and, the, and, and our tradition kind of says somebody's praying, and you're kind of praying with them, like the geese, you know, honking. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, so someone's praying, Lord, we bless this day, and we're like, yes, Lord, we bless this day. And then if you want to pray next then in our tradition that we don't know we have, we start shambling a little louder than everybody, which means I got next. Are you with me? So someone's praying like, Lord, we bless him. And everyone's like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And you're like, if you want to go next, you're like, Shabbat Translated means I got the next prayer. 
So we're, we're praying like that. And Teresa Dedman's praying that, that morning. She's praying, Lord, just bless today. Da, da, da. We're like, yes, Lord. So I, I, start, I start, you know, you have to form your prayer when you pray in public. You know, you know this. And you pray by yourself in the bedroom. You're like, Lord, I just bless my city. I bless the devil. I, oh, not that one, Lord, not the devil. Uh, you know, it don't matter. You just like got it wrong, edit and keep going. But you can't bless the devil in public. That is not good. So you have to form your prayer. So I, I'm forming my prayer. You, you do this too, so stop it. So I'm forming my prayer, and I'm thinking that I'm going to pray that this morning that Bethel Church would be like the pool of Bethesda. People get into the pool and get healed. People get into the pool and get delivered. you get it? Yeah. So, so Teresa's praying, and, and I start, I'm on. <laughs> and she finishes her flight, and I, it's mom next. So I say, this morning I pray that Bethel Church would be, and when I go to say the pool of Bethesda, the Holy Spirit says, that's an old word. No, it happens this fast. That's the old word. And I say, in my, you know how this works. I say, what's the new word? <laughs> he said, Ezekiel's River. Ezekiel's River. Well, see, I don't like the book of Ezekiel, so I, <laughs> I seriously haven't read the book of Ezekiel in years. So I'm like, I remember there's a, there's a river in Ezekiel. And I remember there's something about trees. I don't remember where the trees were. So, you know, so, I mean, this is happening really this quick, you know, this quick. It's like happening in milliseconds. So, I, so I'm like, okay, well, I'll, you know how you say, well, I'll say it and then more will come? It did it. So I say, this morning I pray that Bethel Church would be like Ezekiel's river. No, you can't stop there because you, you shambled louder than that. You can't shambah for 30 seconds and do a 10-second prayer. Like, Lord, I pray this morning about the church to be like Ezekiel's river. There's a river in the book of Ezekiel. You can't, I literally could not remember. And there's trees. I, don't, I couldn't remember. I know there was something about the trees being supernatural that I could not, probably the anxiety, could not remember where the freaking trees were. And there's trees in Ezekiel's book. Amen. Literally, that's what happened. It's a true story. And then was, everyone's looking at you like, you haven't read that passage, have you? No. So that day I go home and I read, <laughs> I had to look it up, my commentary, Ezekiel 47, so I'm going to read it to you, okay? Then he brought me back to the door, uh, verse 1, uh, Ezekiel 47, then he brought me back to the door of the house and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east, for the house faced the east. And water was flowing from down under, that's around Australia, from the right side of the house, from
from the south of the altar. And he brought me out by the way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside of the outer gate by the way of the gate, which faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. Then a man went out towards the east with a line in his hand, and he measured a thousand cubits, let's say yards. And he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. And again he measured a thousand, and he led me through water, water reaching the knees. And again he measured a thousand, and he led me through water, water reaching the loins. And then he measured a thousand, and it was a river that no one could ford, for the water had risen. Enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, said a man, have you seen this? And he brought me back on the bank of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were many trees. <laughs> on one side and on the other. See, there they are. And he said to me, these trees go, uh, I'm sorry, these waters go towards the eastern region. They go down to Abarth and they go towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea. And the waters of the sea become fresh. That word fresh is actually the Hebrew word healed. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and others become fresh, healed. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about the fishermen will stand, uh, I'm sorry, stand beside it. goes on, the fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Verse 11, its swamps and marshes will not be made fresh or healed. Their swamps and marshes will not be made fresh or healed. They will be left for salt. By the river, on the banks, on one side and the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail, and they will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And Revelation goes on to say for the healing of nations. Okay, so... Are you with me? Yes. Follow me. The pool of Bethesda represents a pastorate. What's the point? You need to get healed, you come to the pool. You need to get delivered, you come to the pool. You need to get saved, you come to the church. You, 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 need, you, 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 need, you need your family restored, you come to the church. What you need, you come to the church. You come to the pool. Are you with me? It represents a pastorate. What do pastors do? Gather. Are you with me? Ezekiel's river. Where's the water flowing from? Under this door of the what? Sanctuary. The water is flowing from under the door of the sanctuary. It is leaving the church. A thousand yards, water to the ankles, two thousand to the knees, three thousand to the loins, four thousand, a river no one can ford, for the water has risen. What's the point? In Ezekiel's river, the further you get from the sanctuary, the greater the miracles. Did you see it? What I'm getting at is Ezekiel's river represents an apostleship. What's an apostleship? It is the government that apostles lead in. The word apostle, which we did yesterday, the word apostle means sent one. But it means be, to be sent from a place to another place. To reproduce in the place that you're sent to what you're sent from till the place you're sent to looks like the place you're sent from. Yeah. We call it cultural transformation. Yeah. And yesterday I said this, but Jesus gave us an apostolic prayer. First he called his disciples apostles. And sorry, this is a little review, but 
before his disciples were ever apostles, the generals in the Roman army were called apostles. Why? Because the Romans were conquering, they were conquering nations. They wanted to conquer the world. But they conquer one city, two city, three city. They come back to the first city they conquer, and the people would be back to their old ways. And in Rome, you do as the Romans do. So they said, why are we conquering, but we're not culturizing? So they took this Greek idea. They named several of their generals apostles. Then they sent those apostles out to conquer cities, states, nations. But with the military went politicians and artists and musicians. And you get the idea. They would conquer and culturize, conquer and culturize. When Jesus promotes his leaders, his learners to leaders, it's interesting, he doesn't call them patriarchs, he doesn't call them prophets, he doesn't call them priests, he calls them the secular word, apostle. You know those Roman generals, they're always trying to get us to be like Rome? Yes, you are my apostles. Where are you seated? In heavenly places. What's your job? Make earth like heaven. He gives them an apostolic prayer. Our Father who's in heaven, hall be your name, your kingdom, and you will be on as it is in That's an apostolic prayer. We're trying to get everyone to heaven. God was trying to get heaven to earth. Are you with me? But here's the challenge. Apostles train, equip, and deploy. What do pastors do? They gather. Jesus talked about it, like the 99 and the one who left the flock. How many know pastors gather? They're supposed to. The, the government, the structure, the sidewalks that work for pastors are all aimed at gathering. <laughs> you know that prophet Chiquita? He said the banana that leaves the bunch is the one that gets eaten. <laughs> you with me? That's the motto of pastors. You stay here. Like, Pastor, I feel like we're supposed to move. You will die. You will all die. The earth is flat. People fall off the edge. You leave. You will die. But apostles, they, their ministry is to train, equip, and deploy. In fact, they train and equip with deployment in mind. Are you following me? In other words, if you put an apostle in a pastorate, what is the pastorate? It's the name of the government that pastors lead in. Fivefold pastors. The challenge is, is that our modern apostles have emerged in a pastorate, a government designed to gather. But what's their job? Train, equip, and deploy. So the Lord said the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because they emerged in a pastorate. So now we change the definition like, oh, an apostle is someone who plants churches. No. No, an apostle is someone who transforms culture. If you plant 500 churches and those churches don't change the city, they're not apostolic. I didn't say they're not amazing. I said, they're not apostolic. They could be evangelistic. They could be pastoral. They could be teacher like, like, like uh, Chuck Smith and the whole Calvary Chapel. What, what is Calvary Chapel? It's not apostolic. It's a teacher movement. It was the right movement for the Jesus movement. 
when hippies were getting saved off the streets and becoming Jesus people. And God said, you need to know the word. You with me? And, and so, so I'm saying we redefined apostles because we don't understand what apostles do because they're in a structure that doesn't actually allow them to do what they were called to do. And I'd propose that pastors and apostles, they very much measure success differently. Pastors measure success by how many butts they put in a seat on a Sunday morning. Right? We're like, our church is growing. What does that mean? The church is growing. It means there's more people in the room this year than last year. But how many of you know you can't? Sorry. <laughs> I'm going through that puberty thing. You can't. That was my normal voice. <laughs> you can't measure success in an apostleship by how many people gather on a Sunday if the goal is to get rid of them. If the goal is to train people, equip them, and deploy them, then you actually have the way you keep score is actually against the goal I have. Are you following me? So I'm saying even the way we keep score is a pastorate way of keeping score. I mean, how many pastors, how many leaders in a church do you go, how's, it, how's your church going? Oh, man, you know that the poverty level in our city dropped by 10%? I've never heard anybody say that. Do you know, do you know that the unemployment rate in our city dropped by three points in a year because we prayed into it, we started businesses, we, we, do you know the divorce rate in our city dropped by four points in one year? See, this is how apostles view success. Are you with me? I said this yesterday, sorry for those of you that were faithful. <laughs> Jesus said, you're the light of the world. 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 For emphasis, world. He didn't say, you're the light of the church. And then we're like, in the last days, bro, the world's going to get darker and darker, and the church is going to get brighter and brighter. Well, that's a misplaced light. If the world's getting darker and we're the light of the world, whose problem is that? Bro, you need to see the light. Nobody walks in here and looks at the light. You don't stare at the light. If we're the light of the world, it doesn't mean people see the light. It means they see. Okay, so, okay, let's back up. Because you guys are getting ahead of yourselves. Where are we in the apostolic transition? Because I began this message, which you didn't get to hear really the, the first part of it, by asking the question, what time is it? The sons of Iskar understood the times, 
and they knew what Israel should do in the time. So the question is, what time is it? You know, um, let, me, let me answer that question by giving you another analogy. In 1908, the Model T made its first debut in America. It sold for $825, and 10,000 of them were sold the first year. Four years later, the price dropped to $575, and the sales soared. By 1914, Ford claimed 48% share of the automobile market. Yet people argued over transportation, what transportation was more efficient, cars or horses? Okay, so first of all, what do you call the power of a car? Horsepowered. Do you know why they call it horsepower? Because of the epoch season it emerged in. The marketers of cars were comparing them to horses. So they said, you can run, you could ride one horse, Oh, you can borrow a Model T, which had 17 horsepower. Picture that. You're living in 1900s, and someone says, this horse-drawn carriage, this horseless carriage has 17 horsepower. Can you imagine what would happen if you had a car that was like being led by 17 horses? You get the idea? And so there was a big argument for the first 20 years, what was better transportation, horses or cars? And we're all like, it's kind of funny now. But what's the challenge? The challenge is that the government, which is the structure, was designed for what? Horses. What's that mean? The roads were built for Horses, they were narrow, dirt versus wide and paved. There was stables instead of gas stations. If you had a Model T and you drove about 70 miles, you would run out of, where are you going to get gas? There's no gas. Are you with me? Instead of, instead of veterinarians, I'm sorry, instead of mechanics, there was blacksmiths. Instead of veterinarians, there were no repair shops. There were stables, but no garages. What's your point? I'm saying that, that even though the automobile was clearly better transportation, it was birthed in a season where the, all the structures were built around horses. Are you with me? So they literally, literally, they raced cars and horses. They raced them to see what was better transportation. And people would say, but a horse was made by God, and a, and a, and a car was man-made. And there was these crazy illustrations that we think are insane now. Why? Because we now have government created for cars. Yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. I'd like to propose, apostolically, it's 1908. All the structures are built around horses. Interesting to me, if you go to England, you got to have little cars. Because, well, Europe was building castles. We were in teepees. When we came into this new apostolic reformation, some metaphor, cars, we just moved our teepees, tore down our wood houses, and built wide roads. 
But if you go to England, they couldn't do that. They have, they have buildings that are already 800 years old. So what they do, they got smaller cars. <laughs> anyway, I could say more, but it could be offensive. And I care deeply about these things. I truly would not want to offend a soul. Okay. Are you getting anything out of what I'm saying? I'm saying God said that the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle, even though we are in what God said to me 20 years ago. This is the beginning of a new apostolic reformation. What's the problem? The problem is people still don't think because they're coming out of denominationalism. They still, don't, they still have a mental block because thinking gets punished. They still haven't reached their full potential because it was all based on gathering and not sending. And people are... I, I don't even know how many people I hear in the church every week. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. They're bored to death because they're in a pastorate doing the same thing they do every day when they've called to be history makers and world changers. And people are convinced that the world is flat. Bro, you don't want to leave the safety of your seat, the same one you've been sitting in. I don't know why I'm bored. Because you're going to fall off the earth. We know people. They spoke in one of those tongues, those languages. Then they went crazy. <laughs> Did you notice that in verse 11 of Ezekiel, are you bored? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm done in 13. Did you notice in verse 11 it says, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh or healed, but they'll be left for salt? Did you notice that? Where does the water come from that's in a swamp or a marsh? Uh, this isn't deep, like, turn it on, let's just practice. I don't want to be wrong, I don't want to be wrong, I don't want to be punished. Where does the water that's in the swamp, where does the water that was in the swamp, where does it come from? The river. Why is it a swamp? Because it comes in, but it doesn't go out. In other words, a marsh is full of salt, which means you can get saved. Salt preserves you. The marsh in Ezekiel's river is full of salt. You can get saved, but you won't get healed. You know why? Because you consume, but you don't contribute. See, in order for you to have something that's healing, it has to flow through you. If it gets stuck in you, the very thing that's supposed to make you well will make you sick. Are you with me? The theme song of the marsh is the way we were. You can tell you're in the marsh if your best testimonies were years ago. 
Or, bro, let me tell you what happened in the 70s. That's your best testimony? Your best testimony is 40 years old? You're in the marsh. You got in there, and you never left. Hebrews 6, 1. Boy, this is going to stir you up. I forgot this one was in there. (laughs) Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ. Okay, let me read it slower. Seatbelt. There may be some air. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let's press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, instructions about baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Okay, you didn't get that. Let me read it again. This is the Bible. Therefore, <laughs> leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, which ones? Let us press on the maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What do you just say? Leaving. I mean, resurrection from the dead kind of important. Eternal judgment, minor issue. Faith towards God. I used to think that. Are are you getting where we're going? I'm saying he said, leaving elementary teachings of Christ. Now, how many understand that these are six elementary principles that if you don't have them, you can't leave them? (laughs) He's not saying, don't teach new believers this. He's saying, do something besides repeat the same things every Sunday. Build on these foundations. Bro, bro, you just don't preach the cross every week. I preach the cross. They're all saved. (laughs) Who am I preaching to? Well, everybody needs the cross. But once they get it, they need something else. Well, they need faith towards God. That's why they're here. Well, how about eternal judgment? They know they're going to go to hell if they don't come here. That's why they come here. (laughs) That was a little joke, that part of it. I'm saying we get stuck in the marsh. We just teach the same thing over and over and over and call it revelation with new stories. And I'm saying, yes, lay a foundation. Absolutely. And by the way, I've just been repeating some of the foundations on my social pages because I found that the millennials and the Zs are not getting the foundation. It's nothing against them. They just weren't taught the foundations. So things that I left years ago, I say left, like they're on my foundation, like I built on them. Like I look back, and they ain't got a foundation. They're in the mud saying, there's no hell. You can live like hell and go to heaven. Like, no, 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 let's go back to the foundations. You missed the foundations. And they're talking about heavenly things and angels and, you know, angelic beings and, you know, God. It's like, that's all good, but you got no foundation. Your core values for those things are all, I'd like to learn about the seven spirits of God. You've got to learn what the cross did for you. You've got to learn when you were born again, you're no longer a sinner, so get out of the life of sin because it ain't who you are. 
you got to learn that how you feel is not who you are. And how you feel isn't how you are. Well, bro, you don't understand my temptation. Yeah, Jesus talked about it. He said, if your, arm, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, gouge it out. For it's better to go to the, into the kingdom with one hand than to hell with two. Well, I don't believe in hell. I know. That's the problem. That's why you got both eyes. I'm saying two things. It is, this is the train track that truth runs on. The first thing I'm saying is, once you got the foundation, then build something on it. The apostles and prophets are the what? Not the roof. The foundation. Nobody comes over my... When people come to my house, I don't go, man, you got to check out my foundation. <laughs> Baby, get the flashlight. Show them what we showed. <laughs> Pastor Bill, look at that. She's eight inches wide. And when we built this house, we dug down, what was it, baby? 28 inches. I've never showed anybody my foundation. I mean, I got to have one. I don't have one. My house ain't worth much. You get where I'm going. But it ain't the pretty thing that people come over to see. In fact, they don't even know I, they don't even know I have a problem with it unless I do. You know, you ever go to an old house and it's like, like, baby, am I equilibrium off or are we leaning? And then we go, oh, let's look at the foundation. Are you with me? But nobody looks at the foundation as long as everything's going good. We build something on top of it. So I'm saying two things. One is, we get obsessed with the foundation. Let's look again. Let's have a foundation party. Everybody wants to be an apostle. You're just going to be walked on. We kind of look at it like a pyramid. It's like, first there's the, there's the apostle. That's me. Whatever the best thing is, that's what I am. Then there's the prophet. Then there's the evangelist. Pastor, and when there's time, the teacher. But what, whatever the best is, that's what I am, because I'm from Texas. And I don't even know whatever the big thing is, that's what we are, because we're from Texas. As a matter of fact, we're all apostles. And then God goes, oh, it goes like this. Oh, I won't be up here. What is that? <laughs> That's the saints. Oh, I better be a saint then. I don't want to be one of the apostles that are all getting walked on. You with me? Okay. When, um, when our school was uh, the first, I don't know, five, six, seven years, 
we would send out these hot revivalists from graduating from our school, and they were like, I'm going to change the world. And I would see them like nine months, ten months later, and they would be like burned out. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's going on. And, and it was, happened so often to so many of our really good students. And one day I, was, I really was thinking and praying about it, and I had this picture, this mental picture, that we were sending these teapots out, boiling teapots out, and we were sending them out into refrigerators. And the refrigerator was plugged in, but the teapot had no ecosystem. So how many know that if you put a hot teapot in a cold refrigerator, is the refrigerator going to get hot or is the teapot going to get cold? Teapot's going to get cold. Why? Because it has no ecosystem to keep it hot. And then I remembered, Paul said in Romans 10, how will they hear if there's no preacher? How will they preach if they're not sent? The word there is apostled. Blessed are the feet of them that bring good news. The point is, is that God's never called us just to go. He's called us to be sent. He's called us to be connected to an apostolic house where we just don't go out. We have an umbilical cord, if you will. We have a supply chain. There's so many different ways to, 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 to reference it, so many different ways to say it. Like, you don't want to just go because how many understand that evil has an ecosystem? At least you want two ecosystems in conflict. But the ultimate goal is to unplug evil's ecosystem and then send the firebrands that are plugged in to change the temperature of the room. Most Christians are thermometers, not thermostats. Well, bro, it's pretty cold in here. And we take the temperature of the earth instead of change the temperature. And I propose that apostolic people they're not thermometers. They're thermostats. They are plugged in. They're sent out. They don't just go. They are sent out. They're plugged in. And wherever they go, the kingdom goes. We create our own climate. We create our own weather system. We create our own environment. Well, have you ever gone to Africa and it's so dark there? But I showed up. Not dark anywhere I am. It may have been dark before I got there, but it wasn't dark after. Well, the devil's so strong there. Not when I showed up. I thought there was something crunching under my feet. I'd... I'm saying we have a total pastoral mindset, like stay huddled together. We don't want the devil to get us. I'm like, no, bro, the devil's not going to get us. We're going to get him. I'm not afraid of the Antichrist. He's afraid of me. Anyway, if I'm wrong, I'll be the happiest person the beast ever ate. <laughs> He'd be like, I'm having a happy meal. <laughs> What's that? A Christian that believes in a, in a positive eschatology? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you didn't get that. What is a happy meal to the, to the devil? A Christian who believes in a positive eschatology. Awesome.
Okay, well, I'm right about that. I just want to say, I just preached the message and I thought about it. I'm like, you're right about that. And by the way, that doesn't happen every message I preach, so you're one of the lucky ones. Because I often externally process with a group of people and then realize, oh, that, that's not, that wasn't right. So why don't you stand and, and let me pray for you. See if I can get you out of the marsh. Put your hand on your heart. God's doing a new thing in you. I'm talking about individually. Like this is a prophetic declaration over you. The Lord told me a minute ago, I want you to declare that I'm doing a new thing in every single one of them. Well, maybe in others, but not me. Okay, not you because you have no faith. But everybody else around you. That was a joke. You're supposed to get mad and say, I have faith. Like, okay. And you too. The Lord's doing a new thing in you. I believe that when you leave here today, that you receive seeds that are going to grow in you. Lord, I just release right now these Ezekiel trees that are for the healing of nations. You said in, in Psalms 1 that we are trees planted by the water that bear fruit in every season. And you said in the book of Ezekiel that we actually bear fruit 12 times a year. That literally we are entering into supernatural seasons where the weather doesn't determine our fruit. Come on. You remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree and it had no fruit? And why didn't it have any fruit? It was what? Out of season. But how many know the Lord cursed it because his trees are to bear fruit no matter the season. So Lord, I release fruitful seasons in our lives. Like we go from fruit to fruit. <laughs> I'm not talking about crazy people. <laughs> and we go from fruit to fruit, from faith to faith, from glory to glory. That literally people in our home that have been sick for a decade would suddenly get healed. Lord, I pray right now for the prodigals. I feel like there's a few of you who haven't seen your sons in, 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 a, in, a, in a decade. Uh, maybe a little bit less than a decade. And the Lord's like, you're going to get home and he's going to call. Lord, I speak that out right now that you would change the circumstances. We're getting out of the marsh, and we're getting some fresh, healed water. Come on. We're getting out in the deep water. Oh, I don't know how to swim. You don't have to worry about swimming. What a way to die. Come die with me. We get baptized in the river, then you can die, but everything that dies in the river, remember, it says, shall live. So, Lord, we pray for a baptism in Ezekiel's river, where even if you die, you live. Lord, we just release the fear of getting out of our rut, getting out of our marsh. You know, you know there are people, they, they, they don't bathe so long, they don't even know they smell. 
Everyone else knows they smell. You get in the marsh long enough, you just hang around with other people who smell the same way, you don't even know you smell. And Lord, we pray today that we get out of that smelly, marshy, gooky, alligator-infested, crappy water and move in the river. Just say this, Lord, take me out of my comfort zone and into my divine purpose. I'm ready right now to take a risk and leave the familiar place like Abraham and Sarah. I don't know where I'm going, but I know where I can't stay. And I'll go wherever the river takes me. And Lord, let everything in my life be healed and live in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.